Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is United States District Judge John Tunheim, the man who decided which of the JFK assassination archives could be released some 25 years ago. He knows more about the issue probably than anyone around. Now remember, we love taking your questions. So write in at politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Real Paper, and Miracle Made in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Now, please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, the Israeli-Gaza conflict uh, gave a Thanksgiving for the world, only four days, uh, but they're going to have a four-day uh, truce and a prisoner exchange for hostages. Uh, and uh, that's welcome. Uh, this has been a terribly bloody uh, conflict with pictures of babies that are just wrenching. Uh, and what happens after this four days is just critical. Uh, the war is not going to end. And I think Bibi Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu wants, is, is desperate to save himself, and he wants a prolonged bloodbath. And after October, most Israelis understandably want retribution. But if this is prolonged and more violent, world opinion is just going to turn more and more against the Israelis, including in the U.S., however justified their initial forays were. Uh, I, I think that you can weaken Hamas, but you can't terminate it. And you, the longer you go, the more future Hamas warriors may be, uh, may be in the works. It, I, I think the biggest, this is really a difficult situation, has been for over 70 years. Uh, I, I think what you could hope for is that this goes on not for terribly long and that uh, they come up with some kind of a, uh, a truce, uh, some kind of a ceasefire, that the Israelis replace Netanyahu, uh, who is rightfully blamed by most of its citizens for October 7th. He was un clearly unprepared, more focused on uh, his other priorities, also which were unpopular, uh, and then elect some kind of a Benny Gatz-led center and maybe center-left government, uh, deal with the out-of-control settlers to work with a, for a, eventually towards a two-state solution. But you know, James, that's only possible if you have a decent partner. And so far, the Palestinians have not produced that. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are people out there who could do it, uh, but it's going to be difficult. One note of encouragement, and James, you put me on this. Uh, Tom Friedman's long, long essay in the New York Times on the personal relationships that he reported on between Israeli and Arabs there, uh, and I, a number of uh, a number of Arabs in Israel came to the rescue. October 7th of a number of children and other citizens. If you could, if that could just spread, but boy, uh, it's, it's uphill, James. Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing is I have a absolute rule that I'll follow. I believe nobody in a war and even the side that you think is the just side is Churchill said world war two, the, the truth is so precious. It has to be protected with a bodyguard of lies. So I, I, assume 
that everybody is lying. And, and I, I do that because when people at war, they don't tell the truth. They tell you what they think is in their interest. The other general point I would make is we are Israel in this fight. All right. We're the only people that are supplying. We got two carrier groups there. We've given Israel, I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of aid through the years. The Iron Dome, we've been their, their most steadfast supporter since 1948, which I think is a, is a key in a, in, a, in a just pillar of U.S. foreign policy. But Israel, you, you're not some country standing alone here, ma'am. We're with you in a decision that you make as a government have to be attuned and somewhat in sync with politics in the United States and public opinion in the United States, because without us, you don't have shit. And I think most Israelis and most people understand that. And having said that, there is one major impediment to all of this, I'm serious, it's the face of Bibi Netanyahu. It's when people look at him, they, they get outraged. People in Israel get outraged. People in, all over the world get outraged. People in the United States get outraged. And until that guy says, you know, I, I made an a error of a colossal mistake. I was negligent on, on, on a way that is unimaginable. And it's time to get a new government in here. And, and let's get this ball rolling in a different direction. Till you do that, you're pissing up the mountain. And, and you can have all the demonstrations you want and you can fire this person and you can call all the angst you want at any newsroom or any college, any Hollywood studio. But till that guy's face is still on TV, the immediate reaction of most people is, what in the fuck is he doing still there? And until he gets out the way, I'm sorry, we can have all the Tom Friedman columns we want and all the Democratic diplomatic initiatives you can't. It ain't going to make a shit with him in there. Well, I have no doubt that Tom Friedman would agree with that. Um, mm -hmm. he, no one has been a harsher critic yeah, of right. Bibi Netanyahu than Tom Friedman. And, you know, you have what you have is here, one of the one of the most admirable countries in the world with one of the worst political systems. So somehow they have to put that together and get rid of this guy soon uh, and form some kind of a new government that can hopefully deal with this better than he can. But I think you're absolutely right. There is no future as long as BB is there. Nothing. And, all he, and by the way, all he cares about keeping his crooked ass out of jail and everybody knows it. He's been in power forever. He was asleep at the switch. He's detested there. He's detested everywhere. And quit trying to hang on to power to keep you and your wife out of jail. That's all I could say. But James, as long as his face is there, it, 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 it is only so much you're going to be able to do. James, you don't it, see it, any parallel to any American politician, true. do you? Fool, shit. Let's see. A, a greedy guy in trouble. It's the lawyers behind him, you know, in his mid to late 70s, who's willing to say or do anything to divide anybody to get one more vote, one more out, out of power, one more shekel, a penny, or whatever it is. No, I can't think anybody like that.
Desperate to stay out of jail. I yeah, know. desperate to stay out of jail. Yeah, yeah. If any of our well, listeners have any idea of who 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 might be that uh, right. that 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 person uh, that parallel to BB, please please write in. Let us know. James, speaking of that, uh, Mike Johnson, who I would call the pride and joy of Louisiana, except he's not, and that would drive you crazy. But Mike Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, paid a visit this past week to. The, the orange man of Mar-a-Lago. Now, first, Donald Trump and Mike Johnson have about as much in common uh, as my golden retriever and uh, the cat next door. Uh, no, actually, they have more in common. Uh, Johnson, as you know, is a fundamentalist, uh, very religious person who believes that all abortions and all uh, all gay marriages ought to be banned, and we ought to have more of a biblical type of government. And uh, he he really, I think he really does believe that. Uh, and Trump is anything but that. He is, he's the Holly, access Hollywood guy who all he cares about is himself. To him, you know, he'll use religion if it's convenient, but he sure doesn't care, believe in a whole lot. But the problem that Johnson has, he needs Trump on the surface because he's got, when it comes to the budget, he either has to go and kowtow, cater to that right-wing caucus, in which point he will go and a number of his so-called moderates will either bolt so he can't win or they'll be dead in next year's election, uh, or he can try to come up with some sensible center, if you will, which gets most Republicans and some Democrats. And if he does that, they're going to McCarthy him, namely unseat him. So what he's hoping is that he can get some help from Trump. What, Mike, what you don't understand is Trump only helps one person, himself. And if it's convenient for him, sure, he may help for a day, but then he may renege the next day. And the one thing he cares about deeply is, you know, go and impeach Joe Biden. Do to him what they did to me. Of course, the difference being that there are no facts or any any rationale behind it. So I, I'm, I hope that Mike Johnson had a nice trip. I hope it was a nice meal, but it was a waste of time. Well, I mean, first of all, he's a, a fanatical Trump supporter. He was the lead lawyer on the attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Kind of odd that the Speaker of the House trying to overturn an election, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Key word here is he believes this. Not only does he believe it, he has no doubt. He's never like considered another opinion. He's not the kind of guy that has like examines where he is in life and evaluates his positions as he goes forwards or anything like that. He has some convoluted view of, of young earthism and the earth is 6,000 years old and in 6,000 years it's being run over by homosexuals is about the sum total uh, of his philosophy. He is also a man, I don't know what kind of intellect he has, but he is clearly a man of very limited experience, very limited vision, very limited understanding of the world, who thinks just like 80% of the people in his community think, think like his wife thinks. And again, he, he's a man of 
either marginal or non-existent understanding of the world around him. He's a man who is totally, you know, I used to love this. He's immediately somebody comfortable in their own skin. I don't know who the fuck started that. It was some kind of a excuse to vote for George W. Bush because as opposed to Gore or Clinton, he was comfortable in his own skin. Well, I don't know what was under his brain, but anyway. Yeah, he's comfortable in his own skin. He only doubts anything else. And he's the perfect, perfect vessel to show exactly what Trump Trumpism in the modern Republican Party is. And, and of course, morality, it, how, how would you be a, a, a devout, you know, Bible-following Christian and be a Trump person? I have no idea, but I'm, I'm, I'm beyond explanation by these people, but, I, but you, you get to write, the, you, you get it right. You don't ask yourself, you know, James. He's a true believer. He is. Two, two quick thoughts. Um, the Republicans say, oh, gosh, we only have a four or five seat uh, margin. True. Uh, but I was at a weekend uh, event where Nancy Pelosi spoke. That's what she had, James, four or five seat margin. Uh, she did OK. She did better than OK for two years because mm. a couple reasons. She had great instincts. She has great skills. She has great toughness. And people respected her. Kevin McCarthy, you know, didn't check any of those boxes. Uh, and I fear that Mike Johnson is not going to otherwise. No. It, is a, it is a caucus in total, complete chaos. And you're going to have a government shutdown in February. I, I think that's one of the safest bets. And uh, I, it, it should hurt the Republicans, uh, but I don't think they can avoid it. Well, let me first of all, I couldn't take a, more, a person more unlike Mike Johnson or Nancy Pelosi, who's Nancy Pelosi has actually been around the world. It's actually well-read, thought-out things, experienced has some, you know, understanding of history and culture of a country and how to put things together. You know what I'm saying? Johnson has no interest in all of that. He thinks that being scientifically curious is is a, a sign of, of being a heathen. But it's all mapped out. And he's told you this. They don't, they don't hide it. He said, you want to know what I think? Look in the Bible. That's the answer to everything. Well, it's not, but how do you, why argue with him? And that guy believes that to his core. Every person he associates with believes that to their core. Every person he sees in his neighborhood, at the supermarket, at the drugstore, is, he's just what he is, man. It, it, it's pretty scary. You know, that suit that you alluded to, which Johnson led the House to file an amicus brief, it would have let the attorney general of Texas, the state of Texas, overturn the presidential election results in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and in Georgia and in Wisconsin. Imagine that. The, you know, the attorney general from one state can come in and overturn the results in another state. I don't care how devout a, a believer you are in federalism, that sure as hell doesn't meet any of those criteria. It was so stupid. It was so ill-considered. Supreme Court didn't even hear it. They, they don't even believe it. He said before, what do you say? What is democracy but two wolves and a lamb? Yeah. yeah. Uh, fighting, like fighting over dinner. They, I, I mean, they don't, they don't think, that's not what they think. Democracy is not their thing. It's they ask the question is, what is the straightest line between right now and establishing a theocracy? Well, clearly you're not going to have people vote. Do you say, do you want a bunch of right-wing preachers to, to 
determine what the policy of the United States is. No, but that's what they're trying to get to. And they're they're clear about it. They're, they're very clear about it. Look, look at the Christian nationalism. Look at the writings that he follows. Their mission is to establish a Godhead in, in the government of the United States. They, they, they're not duplicitous about it. And no one will take them at their word. Everybody will look for something else. No, that's what he is. He is at his core an unabashed theocrat. And he sees absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing. He sees everything right with it. And, and you got to just take it. Unlike Trump. So we're so used to him being so duplicitous and like 30,000 lies and not believing in anything and changing his mind. This is an entirely different human being. It's entirely different. And you, you can't start in the same place with them because they're two really, really, both of them very odious. I, I think Trump is an immoral person. I think Mike Johnson is just a misguided fanatic, but, um, you know, no much worse than that. Well, uh, it's going to make for a turbulent uh, next three or four months, not to mention turbulent fall next year. James, anything else in your mind? Uh, doesn't no, have to wow. be. Well, it doesn't have to be. No. <laughs> well, we got, you know, we got big sports coming up this weekend. Oh, yeah. Michigan, yeah. Ohio State. Now, you know, you're, you're an SEC person, so you're going to disagree, but I think that is the best football rivalry in America. I, I don't disagree with that. Good. I mean, I, I, I look back on my life and I've seen, I mean, it, it traditionally turns out, you know, some of the most significant games. No, I didn't, that's a huge I love that rivalry. And, and you know what? They don't adjust. They're always on at noon on Saturday after right. Thanksgiving. Right. I, right. I mean, they don't, you know, they don't let them come in with a TV thing and play the game at night or play the game on Friday. You know, I, I like the way that they, you know, and that's the way you should watch Midwestern football. Southern football is, is, is maybe if anything, a little better at night. Midwestern football is way better in the daytime. Don't ask me why. Of course, with global warming, you don't have to worry about it that much. But I, I love the tradition of that, you know, noon Eastern kickoff. It's always been that way. It's always been on the same day. And, and don't change a thing. Couldn't agree more. And I hope it's climate change notwithstanding, global warming notwithstanding. I hope it's cold at noon in Ann Arbor as 106,000 people file into the big house. That makes it somehow, it's almost more romantic that way. It's just incredible. So, Well, the big thing for, for, for LSU is Jaden Daniels has the game I think he's going to have, and they think he's going to have, he's going to be the favorite for the Heisman Trophy. He's right now a slight favorite. He's got to have a big TV game against A and M. Well, you got to hope that, and you got to hope the, the quarterback from Washington doesn't have such a great game. Yeah, he's, I think he's kind of falling back. The guy, the, Bo Nix, he couldn't pass gas in the SEC. They ran his ass out of Auburn. <laughs> to Auburn. I know you're the SEC man, James. All well, right, listen, SEC big man. games this weekend. I'm much more interested in the college games actually than the, the NFL games, but. Uh, you're not watching the Commanders at the Cowboys on Thursday night? Oh, my gosh. You know That's not appointment you know, TV, is it? Huh? That used to be one of the highlights of my fall. No. The, the old 
inappropriately named Washington football team against the Cowboys. And now it's you hardly know in this town. I mean, remember Dallas week in Washington, James? Oh, God. Oh, I remember we God. used to go to the games at RFK. Oh. Like a, a, a Sunday, you know, the four o'clock kickoff in December. Some of the best in that, that whole stadium would just shake. It literally did. It moved. People don't believe me when I say that, but it moved. No, it did. It did. It was on some kind of road. Was it actually somebody did a a, a story on it, and, and it's a fact. It would move. But I never seen a team go down so far, so fast, and everything. Everything. Well, I think you're right. I just just hope our Washington Nationals aren't going to replicate them, James. But Uh, they look like they're going to say, I know. Somebody give me some hope. Okay, everybody, noon Eastern time, Michigan versus Ohio State, the ghosts of Woody and Bo. Hey, James, today we are taping uh, on Wednesday. It's the 60th, 60th anniversary of that tragic day, November 22nd, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. I vividly recall the exact spot I was walking across the campus when someone yelled, uh, the radio says JFK shot and may die. I dashed over to the newspaper office to where the grim news was confirmed. That's what a huge deal. 60 years ago, it seems like yesterday. We have as a guest today, probably, I think maybe the foremost expert on what occurred uh, on that infamous day in Dallas. It's Federal District Court Judge Jack Tunheim, who has read the voluminous files on the assassination. President Clinton named him chair of the Assassination Review Board, deciding what could be declassified. Judge we're so honored to have you with us today. And 60 years later, most Americans still reject the official version and think there was a conspiracy. Tell us why you think they're wrong. Well, it's, it's a difficult task there, Al, and I'm glad to be with both of you today on this uh, anniversary. I mean, I think that most Americans don't want to believe that The assassination was committed by a 24-year-old loser, misfit, uh, wandering guy who uh, never made much of his life, uh, his short life, uh, and want to make it much more significant than that. And a conspiracy would do that. And I think that's part of the reason. How could someone like this kill an international icon, uh, the leader of the free world, probably the most recognized person in the entire world. And I think people want it to mean more than just some guy with a gun in an old warehouse. Judge, much of of that conclusion rests on the so-called single budget theory, which I think was crafted by a number of staff members, including Arlen Specter. But that, that is that one bullet went through both President Kennedy and Governor Conley. That you know, if you look at it and you don't know anything about it, that seems unlikely. But the evidence, I think you believe, supports that. Well, I think it's forensically possible if you really examine it closely. I mean, the track of the bullet uh, uh, could have done what it did. I think what's more surprising to me is the fact that only one or two grams of the bullet's 167 grams were missing from that particular bullet when it was found 
uh, we thought on the stretcher, maybe in the seat cushion now, according to Paul Landis. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that it's pretty clear if you, if you examine the Zapruder film really carefully, uh, uh, frame by frame, that um, if Governor Conley was not hit by this, that single bullet, it had to come from somewhere else because the gun simply could not have been fired that quickly. The fastest the FBI marksman could have shot that uh, Manleaker Carcano rifle, an old Italian-built infantry rifle, um, was 2.3 seconds. And there wasn't 2.3 seconds, uh, I think, if you look at Zapruder carefully, between the uh, shot hitting, uh, first shot hitting President Kennedy and the, and the Conley reaction to being shot. So if it wasn't true, there had to have been a second shooter. And I think that's what most people think must have happened. A lot of people look at the grassy knoll nearby because it was probably a perfect shot to shoot from, but there's no evidence from there. And the track of the bullets doesn't track a side shot either. Judge, you just mentioned Paul Landis, who was a Secret Service agent on duty that day, and he just just revealed some almost 60 years later that he had removed a bullet from the limousine seat. Um, is that at odds with the official finding? Does that affect what the um, – uh, this was 25 years after your report. Does that change anything you thought back in, in 1998? You know, there's two points here, Al. Uh, the first point is, you know, I find it a little difficult to uh, to believe him that he's only coming forward now, uh, 60 years after the event. Yeah. Uh, Cl Clint Hill, who was there and even closer to the limousine, the, the one agent who tried to save President Kennedy, doesn't believe uh, Mr. Landis um, and uh, thinks that, uh, you know, why is his recollection now, 60 years after the fact, better than it was three days after the event when uh, he wrote a detailed report that didn't mention the bullet? Now, even if it is true, the fact that it was found in a cushion in the back seat doesn't necessarily suggest that the single bullet theory is incorrect. I mean, yes, the Warren Commission relied on the fact that the bullet was found on the stretcher that presumably carried Governor Connolly into the hospital. It's also true that it did leave his, uh, his thigh when the bullet came out, and it could have flown around in that chaotic back seat during the rush to Parkland Hospital in an effort to try to uh, save the president's life. So I don't think it changes the story. Uh, it makes it slightly more complicated if it is indeed true. But I, I think that it is still consistent, in my view, with the single bullet theory. And then the other thing that just came out, and then I'm going to turn it over to James, was I think the, the, it's called NAT, NOT Laboratories, and they claim they were using state-of-the-art forensics that concluded the single bullet theory was impossible. Have you had a chance to look at that? Yeah, I mean, this... This issue goes back and forth over the years, a new report, a new examination. Uh, I think that there have been plenty of experts who've looked at this and decided that it was indeed forensically possible. One of the problems, Al, is that we don't have a lot of evidence of what bullets do when they go through live bodies. Yeah. Uh, this is not something that is uh, is videoed on a on a regular basis, and people don't can't really accurately predict 
the path of a bullet when it goes through tissue uh, in uh, a body. Um, the fact remains, though, that if the single bullet theory is incorrect, there had to have been a second shooter because there simply was not enough time to fire that gun. You know, we're accustomed today to rapid fire automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. This was a bolt action infantry rifle. And in a bolt action rifle, you have to pull the bolt up, pull it back to eject the shell and then push a new shell into the chamber and then push the bolt down and aim again and fire. And that is not a gun that can be fired quickly. So I think that uh, uh, this is where the debate will rage for years to come as to whether or not it was indeed possible. Um, I think I agree with Arlen Specter that it was indeed possible. Uh, and part of that is the absence of any other evidence of a second shooter. James. So, Judge, to be a little bit of a, a, a law professor here, but tell us exactly what the Assassination Record Review Board is. Was it set up by statute. What were you, what was your commission? What were your other members? What exactly were you supposed to do? Why, you were, why were you appointed to do this? Just let's go back to that time in history. Certainly. Uh, back in 1992, Congress reacted to Oliver Stone's JFK movie. Uh, reacted by saying, it's time to release all these records. Federal agencies pushed back and said, this is classified information. We get to decide, the president gets to decide when to release classified information. And so Congress passed a law re requiring an independent federal agency in the executive branch to make determinations on a, a fast basis as to what could be released and what had to be continued to be protected. And so... This was a five-member board, which I chaired. There were historians and archivists on the board with me. Uh, and we had full control over uh, releasing information, and we released you know, virtually all of what we saw. There were a few redactions. Most redactions had a release date on it. It was a very pro-release standard. And it was interesting because the way it was set up with presidential appointment with uh, Senate confirmation was actually designed to try to stymie President Bush, first President Bush, who had announced that this was unconstitutional. And so they wanted to make sure that if the law passed, he wouldn't appoint CIA cronies uh, to the board. Uh, and so that's the way it was set up. But he never made the appointments. He was supposed to under the 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 terms of the law, but he didn't. And so it fell to President Clinton uh, about uh, nine or 10 months later to make the appointments. We had a very pro-release uh, standard to apply. Uh, we compared the public interest in the record uh, or in the information uh, with the danger that might come from release. And applying that standard was quite easy to determine that the public was very interested in the assassination and, and just about everything should be and could be released. So just a rough estimate, I know it's impossible. How many documents do you think you and the board reviewed? I mean, how many different things did you look at in the course of this? We looked at a lot of documents. We made 27,000 individual decisions on uh, words or documents about what should be released over the four years. And there were about 33,000 decisions that agencies gave up on that we would have ruled against them. Uh, we had fights with just about everybody. 
the FBI, uh, the CIA, uh, Secret Service. Secret Service actually was one of the most difficult agencies to deal with. They're still trying to protect themselves from the worst day in the history of the of the service. Um, but there were a lot of records. Today, the collection is about 6 million pages of records at the National Archives, one of its largest collections. So, so I'm going to ask you a couple of stories. I, obviously, I, I was briefed by our friend Mike Hurley, as I'm sure you're aware of. But talk to us a little bit about your time in Minsk and your, your listening to certain recordings. And talk about the Zabarta film, because we keep hearing about the Zabarta film. Maybe you haven't sufficiently gone over the contents of the Zabarta film. So just tell us about Minsk and the Zabarta film, if you don't mind. Well, Minsk is where Lee Harvey Oswald lived for a couple of years during his time in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the story is he, he defected. Uh, he thought he would be viewed as a hero, and he wasn't. Uh, they sent him to Minsk, where he worked in a, a television a manufacturing facility, and the KGB kept a very, very close eye on him. And so in Minsk, uh, still today, is a KGB record on Oswald, which stands about uh, five feet tall in terms of records on top of each other. Uh, and so we negotiated with the Minsk government over making a copy of these files, had a deal with them, which was later uh, stopped by Lukashenko. But it was very interesting because they, they, they brought me to the, uh, the apartment, the small house where he lived when he was there, and it was still completely set up for surveillance. Little holes in the ceiling. Russian women would be uh, perched in the uh, attic of this uh, single room uh, house, and they could watch what he did, and they had to report to the KGB what he did and said. And there were listening devices everywhere. This is a very complete record of his time in Minsk and would be important eventually to get. We got copies of some of the records, the, they, they read a lot of the records to us. Very, very interesting. And, of course, everyone wants to know more about Oswald and his motivations and what he had in mind. And turning to the Zapruder film, which is, you know, the best evidence of what happened that day, it is a film that was made by an amateur standing on a pedestal that captured the assassination, captured um, not when the first shot hit uh, President Kennedy, but shortly thereafter, because he's reacting to it, and then it obviously shows the headshot. It is important because it tells us the timing uh, between the shots, and that's what led to uh, the Arlen Specter conclusion recommendation to the Warren Commission of the single bullet theory. At first, they thought three bullets, you know, presidents hit twice, Connolly's hit once, it's an easy uh, answer. But it wasn't so easy once they saw the timing of everything with the Zapruder film. Now, we tried to get the Zapruders to donate the original of that film to the United States government for safekeeping. The original has been in the National Archives since the Zapruders bought it back from Time Life for a dollar in the early 1970s. Uh, so it has been in, in perfect condition, and the first day copies are there as well. 
but in the end, we couldn't get them to get off the dime, so to speak. So we took it in the constitutional sense, and the government had to pay for the film eventually. But the original is there for the public uh, to know that it is uh, in safekeeping. And, uh, you know, you can buy a video of it, and you can watch it yourself and see exactly what it says. It's a, it's a very important piece of evidence. So, Bob, front right back to Al, because I'm going to come back to you. Got a lot more. I want to talk to you, but so you have all of this. You've seen these. I don't know how many hundred thousand documents you've built. The Zapuda film, the Mints, the, the everything. Do you get a lot of calls from people working on this, or people writing books, or do they tend not to ask you for fear of what you might tell them? I'm just always, I'm, I'm always curious. <laughs> you know, I've gotten a lot of calls over the years from researchers, uh, you know, seeking direction in certain areas. What do I think of this? What do I think of that? Um, you know, uh, there had been researchers that would call me once a week over the years uh, to just run issues by me. So, yeah, I hear a lot from them. There's a lot of people that are still working on these records. You know, the latest focus of a lot of researchers is uh, the CIA's role in everything here. Uh, the CIA, obviously, as records have come out, knew much more about Oswald, had many more connections with him than had been publicly known. After all, the CIA shared nothing with the Warren Commission, nothing at all, even though a former director of uh, Central Intelligence was a member of the Warren Commission. Um, so uh, this stuff is coming out later. Much of it was classified, much of it we released, but there's still more uh, more to come out. And that's where a lot of researchers are, are honing in right now to see whether it is possible to prove that the CIA might have played a role in the assassination. Alan? Judge, on that point, you said, I believe, that you that the CIA lied to the inquiry. What did they lie about, and do you have any theories to why they lied? You know, it's interesting because we dealt primarily with their uh, historical records office, the people who are in charge of declassifying records on an ongoing basis. It's mostly retired agents who come back and work on, on these records. Um, you know, I think that uh, the, the biggest lie they told us was that a particular operative uh, named George Joannides, was simply uh, a public relations guy for the CIA, and he was nothing more. At the time, we didn't know about his role, his critical role, uh, in working with uh, the uh, CIA-funded uh, anti-Castro Cubans uh, in Miami, uh, someone who also may have had contact with Oswald as this, because he was in New Orleans for a time when Oswald was there. And so we didn't uh, order release of his personnel file, in part because they assured us that uh, he was nothing more than a public relations guy who the CIA sent over to work with the House Commi Select Committee on Assassinations. And he obviously was much more than that. And not all of his records have, have come out yet, unfortunately. The CIA is still fighting them. Boy, you, you know, um, they're... As you said earlier, you know, the most revered man in the world was suddenly assassinated. So there would have been a conspiracy theory no matter what. I mean, even if it was simpler. But I think it was compounded by Jack Ruby killing Oswald uh, uh, two or three days later. Uh, what? Two days later, I guess. When you looked into this, is there anything you learned about Ruby that was relevant 
uh, to the whole investigation? Well, that's a that's part that's part of the real mystery here. And Ruby is probably the best evidence of a conspiracy. Uh, he stalked Oswald the whole weekend. He was in and out of the police station all the time. On the one hand, he was maybe a perfect person because the police knew him. Uh, he entertained cops at his uh, strip club in Dallas on a regular basis. They liked him, good old Jack. On the other hand, he was also known as a blabbermouth. Um, and his first call after he was arrested was to a Hollywood agent. He wanted to sell his story as a, as a movie because he had done something heroic for the American people. He's a strange man to really try to understand. At one point, he's alleged to have said there's more to the story, but I can't tell you here in Dallas because uh, I would be killed. And uh, no one really followed up on that to bring him someplace else, maybe to Washington or something to, uh, to tell more of the story. We've never been able to find records of his attorneys uh, who have uh, you know, who represented him during his trial. Um, you know, it's, it's really too bad because I think that uh, knowing the full truth of what happened probably died with Oswald that Sunday morning when we were all watching TV, when uh, Ruby made his way down into the basement of the police station. You know, part of what we have to remember, too, is 60 years ago, this is not the America of today. This is a time when there weren't... Um, uh, you know, forensically appropriate uh, investigations. The Dallas police caught this guy because he shot a cop, and then they paraded him around to, to show how good they were. When in fact, I mean, I'm not sure that the police force there at the time was any more competent than, you know, Andy Griffiths and, and Bar Barney Fife. It was just a different time in America. Uh, you know, we, we would never think of bringing someone out in front of the cameras who was accused and, and charged with killing the president of the United States. But that was what they did at the time. They were proud that they had caught him uh, through really no extra effort of their own. Joe, just final question, and then let James close this out. How much more uh, classified material is there left, and do you think it'll make has any relevance when and if it's released? Well, I, I've I've long said everything should be released. Now we're long after the event. There's no reason to protect anything. I think in the records that remain, there's probably less information than in you know one percent of the the information released during WikiLeaks. Uh, so, I mean, this is just not significant, I don't think, at this point in time. So I'm not sure what we're going to find out. Virtually everything that we saw has been released now. And these are records that have, the CIA has found since that time uh, or records that they created in the 1990s uh, as part of their effort to respond to us, including records that were uh, demonstrated that they were trying to fool us into uh, not releasing information. I think that somewhere between 1,500 and 4,000 pages uh, of redactions, not uh, the documents themselves likely have been released, just the redactions on these pages. So not much is left. It is a part, a small part of 1% of the, the total records. And uh, 
I, I don't anticipate anything that's going to be a smoking gun, but one never knows. Uh, the CIA uh, lost records over the years. Records were destroyed. I think it uh, is impossible to create a complete record at this point in time of the assassination, but we sure tried. We, we tried to find everything we could get our hands on and get it released to the public. And ultimately, the public has to make up their mind themselves. If someone believes it's a conspiracy, perfectly fine with me. I've always had an open mind about that. But, you know, I'm a judge. I deal in real evidence. And, you know, there isn't even circumstantial evidence uh, of, a, of a conspiracy. Maybe there is evidence that is plausible. Some of it is perhaps fanciful, but these holes in the investigation have been filled through the years by researchers with, you know, plausible answers. And that's what people believe. And it's their right to believe that. But at the same time, um, I still have not seen anything that would convince me that anyone other than Lee Harvey Oswald was shooting on that fateful day 60 years ago. James. So, so Yana, you, you are by and large, a, a, a true son of Midland America. You, you grew up in a really small town in way up northwestern Minnesota. You were educated there. You've served in various legal functions. You've been chief judge at a federal court for almost 30 years. You're a person of considerable experience in education and knowledge about the country. Can you venture us any possible explanation as to why 60 years after this people like believe this crazy insane stuff is deeply or other crazy insane stuff do you have any observation of why people believe things that have been proven and disproven over a period of time and refuse to accept it I, I, i'm inarticulate question but i think you know what i'm driving at yeah, I think we're a country that uh, that really loves conspiracy theories, uh, really loves to kind of get the the meat on the bone, so to speak, from uh, uh, from conspiracies uh, right and left. And people are willing to believe conspiracy theories even without uh, particular evidence. Um, I'm not sure how we uh, ever change that. Uh, you know, I think it's exacerbated today by social media, which wasn't around in the in the 1990s when we were doing our work certainly wasn't back in, in the 60s but I, I do think that a lot of what was done originally here the initial investigation was largely poor the FBI uh, was the investigative arm of the Warren Commission which was an FBI that wasn't much trusted at the time because of Hoover uh, good lawyers working on it from the commission standpoint. But then they said, this is what happened, but we're not going to share the evidence with you. We're going to give you these 26 volumes of information and you can read for yourself, but we're not going to share anything that's classified. And we know today that the CIA didn't cooperate at all with the Warren Commission. And so the books came out right away. There were holes in the investigation and they were exploited and people just simply don't believe that that's the answer. Uh, we have to remember it was not a special prosecutor. It was a group of seven so-called wise men who did this, uh, this work in order to make sure that the country was, was advised properly and what had happened. You know, Hoover said the day of the assassination, a lone gunman did this, no one else. 
Uh, and, you know, with all of the evidence that's come out and the plausible additional evidence, people believe it. And I understand that. But again, I look back to the real evidence in the case and it's, it's hard to find real evidence of a conspiracy. But people like conspiracies, and you know that. So, so Judge, two more questions. One of kind of, you have another thing that you're really known for, and that is you have traveled extensively trying to help other countries set up a, a court system. Can you just talk to us briefly about where you've been and what this work is like and why this is so important and you're so passionate about this? Well, I think it's important that we help other countries who are trying to learn how to be democracies, how to live under the rule of law as opposed to what their pasts have demonstrated. And, and I just find it interesting and important. It, it's, a, it's a slow process. It's a, you know, one or two steps forward, then maybe a step back. Uh, but, you know, one place where I've spent a lot of work, time and work is in Kosovo with no history of a democracy there. And they've built quite a, quite a good government. Uh, the constitution, I think, is, is well put together. And, and another place I've spent a lot of time at is in Uzbekistan, and that's a long ways away, but they are trying very hard there to create a modern society that is fair. And even with uh, a somewhat autocratic president, uh, the rule of law is starting to flourish there. So I think it's important to do this, and I do uh, try to work my time so I can do it when I'm asked. And uh, our State Department, I think, does a great job of funding this kind of work around the world in order to help other countries to the point where we are at in uh, having an effective democracy. So, so, Judge, before I let you go, I have one more final question. That is, there's been a lot of talk because of current events about juries and how juries act and hung juries and juries from blue states and juries from red states. And I think when I look at the judicial district that you are chief judge, it's a kind of blue dot, but a lot of red around it. And you've uh, almost 30 years on the bench and I don't know how many years of assistant AG and everything. You've seen a lot of juries and act and react. Can you give us like some general points that you observe about juries and some things that we should pay attention to as we go through this and we look at jury selection or we look at uh, can you get a fair jury trial in Palm Beach County? Can you get a fair jury trial in Manhattan? Can you get a fair jury trial in, in Duluth or anywhere else? What, just talk to us a little bit about that. You know, I have throughout my career been always enormously impressed with the work of our citizen juries. You know, I greet them in the morning when they're first called in and they're looking out the window, they're looking at their watch, they're thinking they should be at work or should be golfing or taking grandma to the doctor or whatever. Uh, but by the time they're selected and they get into the case and at the end when I talk with them, most jurors consider this one of the most important experiences of their life. And you think about it, the, it's very important decisions that we ask juries to make. Uh, we ask them to decide whether someone is guilty or not guilty of a crime. And rarely have I seen problems with uh, jurors. Uh, part of it is careful selection, but part of it is explaining to them the importance of their role. Uh, 
And it is an important role. It's a constitutional right that people have to jury trials. And uh, I think you can get a fair trial anywhere. You have to be careful. You've got to make sure you don't have someone who is an extremist of one sort or another. So you have to ask the right kind of questions ahead of time to make sure that you understand you're getting a good, solid group of jurors. But boy, I tell you, over the years, I've been always very impressed with jurors and they leave with their heads uh, high and having felt that they have contributed in a meaningful way to our government and to our, our rule of law. And I think that's really important and it's a good lesson for all Americans. Well, Judge, thank you. I turn it back, but just make a statement. I know that Al and I and all this show are very appreciative of the work that you've done and throughout your career and foreign stuff and trying to bring some closure to the Kennedy assassination to numerous jury trials. But if the United States is going to continue to succeed, we need a lot more Jack Tunheims out there. And thank you very much, sir, for being on the show. Thank you, James. I would just concur, Judge, and uh, on this day, it was particularly appropriate. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Th thank you, Al. Thank you, Al and James. Great to participate today. Okay, James, and now for our outrage of the week. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, I instead am going to offer a tribute to a remarkable woman. Rosalind Carter, who passed away this week, was one of the most significant and admirable first ladies in our history. She and husband, President Jimmy Carter, were partners. She sat in on cabinet meetings, represented the United States abroad. My wife once followed her on an exhausting Latin American Latin American trip where she met with every head of state and they knew they were talking to official U.S. policymaker. In the White House, she took up the cause of mental health, which few paid attention to back then before she changed that, continuing her work for another 40 years. She and Jimmy Carter built houses for the homeless, Habitat for Humanity, took foreign trips to help cure diseases, and she started the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving all the way from young children, ill children, to infirm seniors. This soft-spoken woman was all about caring, compassion, and helping others. The Carters were married for 77 years, living most of their lives in Little Plains, Georgia, before she passed away this week at 96. She made a difference in the world for millions of people. Rest in peace, Rosalind Carter. You made the world a better place. Oh, that's nice, touching, accurate, to the point, and uh, important. Uh, great, great job. Thank you. It, it contrasts to, to Rosalind Carter. Uh, I'm gonna, not so much an outrage, but a strong recommendation that you read Alfred and Tom Etzel today in the New York Times. And because what he does, he just puts in to, in, in the way that Tom can do with his kind of experience and wisdom, exactly what a horrific situation we're in and what a insane election cycle that we're looking to where we have to admit that Donald Trump has a, a, a real chance. And one of the things, and I don't know who's at blame, but when you have something of this magnitude that has happened, and it may happen again, let's don't kid ourselves, how did, this, how did we get to this point? 
in, in we're sitting here trying to figure out, well, do you cover him or you not cover him? Or do you give him this or do you not? And I, you know, there's going to be a thousand books written about this for a long time. And I don't know who did what wrong, probably more than one person, but for this country to be in this kind of peril, facing this kind of choice, at this point in our history is, is really, it's not only is it sobering, it, 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 it's a time to like really think, how in the shit can we get out of this? What can we do to get out? I know we got to try to not elect him, but uh, you know, going forward, how, how do you cover him? How do you attack him? What's the right way to go about it? Clearly, no one has figured out quite the right way right now. And I don't, I don't know if there is one, but you should read Tom's piece. It'll get you to at least to think. He's, he's one of the best. Was our guest, was it two weeks ago, uh, James? But boy, I read everything Tom Mitchell writes. Right. Um, right. Just the day was just really brought it home as to where we are. Okay, James, let's go to our questions. Uh, they're always so good. Uh, and we'll start with Jeff in St. Pete, Florida, who says, when is the date when there is no turning back legally as to being the nominee at the convention? Well, I, don't know. I, I guess legally the, the day before the election, if you, if there's a legal process for somebody to take over. It becomes really more complicated in some places. You can't get on the ballot. But if you had a nominee that dropped dead in May, you would have a no, you would have another nominee. The whole country would not fall apart. But you know, and for every like rule there is to get on the ballot, there's an alternative rule of what do you do if in, in case not. And it's a state by state thing, but it's careening in a in a way that. It, boy, it sure looks like 70% of people don't want it to careen in this direction, but maybe where we end up. Right. Uh, I think that the cowardness of this period of the Democratic Party, when historians look back, and I don't know, roughly from March of this year through the end of October, the, the, the idea that Dean Phillips is the only person that stood up and said, you know, maybe we ought to take a second look at this is... is Remarkable, and the consequences of this are going to live with, us, live with us for a long time. A long, long, long time. I hope you're wrong, and I fear you're right. Right, I do. I want to be so wrong, you can't imagine how wrong I want to be. James, next, John in Allentown, Pennsylvania, says, Why is there any talk about the Democrats being too far left, given how extreme the GOP has become? John, you're onto something. There's no question. There is a Democratic left. It's pretty small. It's not terribly influential, at least in Congress and in most state governments. Uh, and it causes some problems, I think, in nonprofit groups and foundations and universities. Uh, but when it comes to the body politic, the uh, the Democratic left is smaller. It is less insidious. It is less, uh, certainly less violent prone, not at all violent prone than the right wing. I mean, look at Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Getz. And that's just 
I'm just picking out three of their all-star nutbags. So, uh, John, I think you're right. Uh, there's a big difference between the Democratic left, you know, which sometimes can be very naive and even destructive, and the really dangerous Republican right. Yeah, it, 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 it's so much different. In, in, you should read, of course, as always, John Chatham, the difference. And it was always, well, they had all these anti-Semites, and they were like, you know, wanted to cut off donations to, I don't know, Piano Stanford or somewhere. And then Elon Musk just steps in and just sits right in their face, who's their kind of libertarian hero, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't know what to do. And, you know, no, no, nobody ever said there were good people on both sides of Charlottesville. I mean, but this, this is not equivalency. These are some people that have uh, no idea what the history of colonialism is. But having said that, it, there are some, some people live in districts that have a, a large number of Palestinians in the district and have to represent the district. But the, the, the real, real danger here is in people like Charlottesville and people like Musk spitting this stuff out. It's not some, you know, people on the quad at Penn protesting something. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, James, this is this is your issue. I mean, it really is. I mean that. J.D. in Lee's Summit, Missouri, says, what's the chance that Tuberville's unpatriotic annex are part of a larger effort to line up military leadership that's going to be supportive of Donald Trump's dictatorial aspirations? Well, in all due respect to my friend from Missouri, if that was his goal, he probably couldn't go about it in the worst possible right. way. I don't think he's really making himself uh, popular with senior military leadership in the United States. I, I, you know, I'm sure that Trump is an immoral, you know, criminal. I'm, I'm, I don't have, I don't have another iota of doubt. I'm sure that. Mike Johnson is is a self-righteous, clueless buffoon. I don't have any doubt about that. I, I, I don't know if it's sheer stupidity. I know there's a lot of stupidity involved with Tuba Bill. It always is. Or is he also a bad guy? I, 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 like, I don't think Mike Johnson is a bad guy. I think he has a... a naive, silly-ass view of the world. But I don't think he's a bad human being. I think Trump is a rotten human being. And I'm torn on Tuberville. I'm torn. I, 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 could, I could go either way. He's really that stupid or he's really that goddamn bad a person. I don't know. It's could be Could be two factors at work here. I, I'll readily concede that. But with Trump, there's no complication. He's rotten as, as a human being could possibly be. In Mike Johnson, just all he's known all of his life, all he thinks, all he believes, and that's what you're going to get. I think you're right. On Tuberville, uh, you probably studied him more than I have. I think he's, I, I think he's too dumb to be part of a to concoct a conspiracy. Uh, Maybe so, but I, I mean, you got to. You, you can't discount the fact with him that he might just be an inherently bad human being. Just James, as an aside, how in the how in the hell did he ever beat Nick Saban when he was coaching <laughs> on Burn? <laughs> I don't mean, I don't know how many times he did, but he couldn't. You know, probably when Saban first got there, but he didn't do it very often. Mm -hmm. And you know, he had one 
really good team, I think, that somebody else recruited for him. But hey, I, I, don't ask me how some people win football games or not, but I can tell you the guy is okay. not smart at all. Uh, next, maybe Edgar next we have Luke in Wangaratta, Victoria, Australia. Man, we're doing great with Dan oh, under wow. today, James. Given the two-party system you have is not working too well, can you ever see a time when other parties or independents make a difference in your Congress or Senate as, the, as they have in a positive way we have in our parliament? Luke, uh, I, I... Well, they're going to make a difference. Not, you know, I'm no expert in Australian politics, and I think you have a point there. I just don't think it works here. Uh, I think for a whole host of reasons history, maybe someday it will, uh, but I think there's a certain... I used to say there's a certain stability in the two-party system. Certainly, the House Republicans and some senators have undercut that argument in the last several years. I'm just not sure what a third or fourth party uh, would do to improve it. You know, maybe if things keep getting as bad as they are now, uh, in a couple cycles, that'll change. Well, you're going to see them have a big impact in this cycle. I mean, we're already showing them in democracy court, <clears throat> something like 18% of the vote. Some people have it higher. So they, they're going to, and they've had an impact. Go see in, in, in 2020 or see in 2016. All right. It certainly got a huge amount of vote in, 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 in 1992. So it's not like they're non-existent. Don't, don't, don't get yourself wrong. The constitutional system is a little bit different than the parliamentary system. But they have a big, big impact now. The impact is going to do nothing but bigger. And a lot of that is describable to the two parties that are going to present two nominees that 70 percent of the people in the country don't want. And that's that's really dangerous for democracy. That really intrudes on the guardrails of democracy, the, the institutions, the, the basic function of a good democracy is to give people a choice they want, and they're not, we're not producing well, that. I absolutely agree That's with that. I think. I think Luke wants to know uh, if this is going to, you know, uh, also affect congressional or Senate races. Will there be third or fourth party candidates there? <laughs> it's part of the, fraud, the fraudulence of no labels and some of those other, you know, if they really want to create a party, they ought to have a party. They ought to have candidates. You don't have to have 500 or 500, but you ought to have candidates. They don't. Uh, but... They're going to make a difference in the president. I don't think that's I, t you're right. They are. And, and the one thing is, I'm not a fan of them at all. You know, everything that everybody says about it's true. But the one thing you can't say, <clears throat> there's not a market for what that's they're for selling. Because sure. yeah. there is, and and you know, the two parties can de decry it, but how much of a culprit were they in in creating this environment where, Jesus, who knows what's going to happen? Really don't. It's, but it, it's bad out there. It's really bad. So we've been talking about this in the spring, and all of a sudden, collectively, right after the first of November, everybody went, "Oh my God, these poll numbers are awful." Oh really? Well, where have you been the whole time? It's like it's like they were great in September, and something suddenly happened. No, wrong. Right. Right. Uh, no, uh, well, I think you're right. Andrew, and hey, we're really doing great with the Aussies today. Andrew in Armadale, NSW, wow. Australia, says it appears Biden is counting on fear and disgust of Trump. I remember Hillary Clinton doing the same. What will Trump do to quash that strategy? Can he flip on abortion, moderate his speech, and he's capable of any of that? I don't think he has any desire to do it. Yeah. 
I mean, he unfortunately doesn't have to say something. That, but I don't know. I, don't believe, I believe he feels like the more he gives him of himself, the better off he is. Anytime he tries to moderate or be anything other than himself, he just gets in the trouble. So he's going to, looks like to me, his strategy is just double down on disunity and disharmony and chaos and whatever, you name it. He seems to be pretty comfortable in that whole strategy to me. And by the way, you don't seem to be working that bad for him as of right now. Sadly, you're right. Uh, Kyle in Portland, Oregon, asked, is there a way to narrow the wage gap between the very top uh, of a company and the very bottom through tax policy? You bet there is, Kyle. And it's not that hard to do. There just is not any will. For the top, what you want to do is raise the top rate. It's now uh, 37%. If you raise it to, I don't know, 40 42%, that's a lot less than it used to be. And do away with those loopholes like carried interest and the real estate breaks uh, that Trump uh, helped get through. And on the bottom, uh, you know, certainly uh, go back to the expanded child tax credit. Uh, expand the earned income tax credit. You know, if you did all of that, you're still going to have a gap, bigger than it is in most countries, but a lot less than it is today or less than it is today, and it won't be growing the way it is today. But uh, the politicians just won't face up to that. Because you know what? I know you the, agree the with this. people who get the child tax credit, James, they don't give contributions. Well, I know you agree with this. Why don't you just collect the taxes that are owed? If we have help. this in place for this enhance it, that, that would that would help a lot. If they just paid what they were owed, you you you'd have a, a you'd make a pretty good dent in it. I don't know if you're ever gonna want if you even wanna close it totally, but it's all gonna have some differences, but you, you certainly can make it better and the way to start is make people pay what, what they owe. Yeah, and the reason Republicans are trying to cut the IRS budget is so those people won't pay what they owed or owe. Exactly. They ain't doing it because it's right. going to hurt poor people. And then they're trying to, in, in order, I would call it increasing deficit, but you call it cutting the budget. Right, they're both right, right. right. Anyway. <laughs> okay, our final question is from Bob in Washington, D.C., uh, if we're going to go to Australia for a oh, couple, right. we'll come home from me for a couple. Yeah, but it's to you, James. Do you think there's anyone in Biden's inner circle who has given the president a reality check that by staying in the race, even though most people think he's too old, may result in the loss of democracy and that he's not the only Democrat who could beat Trump? It, it, the short answer to the question is I don't know. The, the longer answer is I, I don't. I suspect he didn't ask for advice. He just said, this is what we're going to do. And the people have been with him a long time. They're obviously de very dedicated to him. And they're carrying out his orders. I, but I don't, I don't know that there's anybody that has the statute or the standing relationship to go in and say something like that. I don't know that it hadn't happened. Uh, again, I can't wait to read all the books as to what went on there and what went on in major Democrats' mind where we have decided what it seems to be uh, that we're going to go into this election with a choice that people don't want to make. I, I think it's it's not a particularly patriotic place to be, but it's where we are, and I guess we're just going to have to resign ourselves to make the best out of what we can do what we got. Yeah, I don't and, know either, James, and I think he surrounded himself with some exceptionally talented people, both in the cabinet and the White House, but 
there are no peers. These are all top-notch staffers. There is no Jim Baker, as there was in the first Bush administration, or Vernon Jordan, an advisor to Bill Clinton, who could walk in and say, Mr. President, you're making a big mistake. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that person exists, but so far it looks like uh, that he or she doesn't. And uh, Yeah, but they did. They didn't have any sure. influence. That's so. for sure. <laughs> They, maybe, we can't tell you nobody did, but so far, and they just like gut it out and let them go, and we're doing this, and we don't care. And boy, it's a big, it's a big ass bet yeah. they're making. I, I, it sure is. They know it's not that they're making a big bet on their lives, their career. They're making a big ass bet on the future of the United States. All right, listen, those questions are great. The ones I, I feel guilty about the ones we didn't get to because they were so good. So send them again next week. And we, uh, we don't especially appreciate those from Australia and other places around the world. We just as much appreciate the ones from Portland, Oregon, or Washington, D.C. But it's a, it's a great testament to how smart our listeners are, James. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Real Paper, and Miracle Made in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. And to all you listeners out there, a very happy Thanksgiving. Ah, thank you.